Another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me is the uh, metal-legged wonder, yes. Nick. Hi. Scarer, Hello. scarer of dogs. That's right. Uh, One step closer to Terminator. <laughs> you're like the Walmart version of a Terminator. I'm a T1 right now. <laughs> it's a few metal parts. No, you don't melt back together. You're not an old Schwarzenegger, but you're mostly metal. Uh, so they have you back at work now. Yes. How's that been going? Terrible. <laughs> I still do stuff. It's weird that like someone that does not have full functioning uh, legs is still forced to go back to work at the full capacity they expect anybody else to do. It's it's almost like the uh, the army doesn't care about you. You don't mm. have to comment on that. I believe that's illegal. But uh, today we are talking about part one. Oh, fuck of the a- Yeah, of the Anglo-Zulu War. Now, this was not originally going to be a two-parter, which it will be a two-parter. It was originally going to be a, um, uh, just like a, an episode on two major battles of the war. Um, we have a dry erase board, which I think we've had since day one of this podcast, yes. where we, we listed countless battles uh, that we plan on covering. A lot of those we've covered, some of them we haven't, but the first one on there is a battle involved in this war, the Battle of uh, Isandawana, Islawanda, whichever I've heard it pronounced both ways. I believe Islawanda is correct, uh, and Rorksdrift. We'll be covering both of those, um, but as we've gotten better at this whole thing, we've learned that um, like you kind of have to tell why the fuck this battle happened. Yeah, I don't know anything. Which in turn led us... I've seen Zulu. uh, We will be talking a lot about Zulu. And um, the reason for that is if you ask anybody about um, uh, these battles, they almost will, within 10 minutes, talk about Zulu. Uh, It's it's not a bad movie. It's not an accurate movie. It worked. It's it's a good movie for its time. It's it's like... um, watching a movie from the 50s and expecting it to be accurate about World War II or expecting any movie about white people uh, invading Africa being accurate at all. Uh, (laughs) uh, Now, uh, if there's one thing that we love about this show, it is roasting the British Empire. Uh, I think the last episode that we did was a full-on British roast battle uh, was was their magnificent retreat from Kabul during the Anglo-Afghan War. You know what? We've been on this Soviet train for a while. We really have. It's been a couple months. So you know what? Good. Yeah, I mean... I like this. If there's a uh, a punching bag that history has of fuck-ups, it's... Well, modern day would be America, but, uh, you know, 1800s and, and prior would be, you know, uh, the British Empire, the oh, Spanish, yeah. the French. Uh, we're, we're just new to the game. We got literally decades left of this before we could even compare. Right. So uh, hold on to your butts, y'all. <laughs> it's gonna get worse. <laughs> I look forward to the day that we're podcasting about like the failed twenty thirty five uh, American invasion of Canada. As you can hear the the microphone I shake just, from artillery strikes. <laughs> the South Park movie, yeah, just comes into my head. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Team Human Shield. Dude. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, now. Uh, if anybody remembers correctly, uh, I, I feel like it, it should be pointed out that uh, one of the reasons from the, uh, the the British blunder in uh, Kabul was because they would simply not wash their dicks after fucking the local I mean, sex workers. Um, you don't need to. I, I don't really need. There's no reason for me to bring that up other than I like to talk about it because it's fucking hilarious. Self-cleaning. <laughs> yeah, it's- no, no, it, it's not self-cleaning. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's like you pull your foreskin back and it sounds like Velcro. <laughs> oh, it's so, oh, it sounds terrible. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, that's actually a pretty Have good you ever analogy. Seen somebody wash it after the field, like after a good I don't, rotation. I generally don't watch people wash their so dicks. So it was no. an accident, but it was probably the weirdest thing I ever seen in my life. Please tell me more about the time you watched a man, you watched a man wash his foreskin. It was on accident, but it happened. So. I guess we're here. So he had it by two fingers. Just 
holding it like disgusted, but he was like washing it and scrubbing. It was the weirdest thing I've seen in my life. I've never touched my dick like that. I don't have a rebuttal to that. I, I have you? No, I'm circumcised. If in case so anybody's wondering about my dick. Um, so no, I've never had to rinse out my foreskin <laughs> like it was a disgusting piece of underwear. Uh, but if there was a good analogy to find any of that, um, it is the British Empire upon the world is like unvelcroing a rotten foreskin. Uh, um, <laughs> feel free to ignore everything we just said. Uh, but a few decades after the retreat from Kabul, uh, the British mechanisms of empire would bring them to what we now know today as South Africa. The British had multiple settlements throughout South Africa, uh, many of them uh, who bordered Boer settlements or republics, which were and are white South Africans. Uh, you actually don't have to look much more into the Boer history. It's all bad. It's all bad. Really? Oh, yeah. How bad? Uh, apartheid bad. Oh. <laughs> oh. So for people who are unaware, the Boer or Boer or whatever, or Afrikaner, uh, were Dutch white colonialists who settled in South Africa and would eventually just bring horrible, horrible things to the people of South Africa. One of those things is, of course, the band Dianford. Completely unforgivable stuff. Um, now, you have repeatedly made fun of me for liking the, the movie Chappie. Yes. Die Antford's in that movie. Oh, yeah, she is. <laughs> Both of them. Ninja, yeah. Ninja. He goes by that the name thing. Ninja. Yeah, that is important. I've heard their music, seen their music videos. Their music sounds like two fax machines. It's fucking. Oh, God. Yeah, it's not good. Um, and you like the movie. I, I, I overlook some things. Oh, my God. Isn't Hugh Jackman in it? <laughs> yeah. That's like the best part of the whole movie. That's it. Yeah, Hugh Jackman and robots, you really can't go wrong. That's why Real Steel still works. God, that movie. <laughs> I don't mean it's good. I meant like when I watched it, like, it's a good airplane movie. <laughs> Even then, I'll skip over it. Yeah, I might I'll watch, watch it. the airplane go over the wor- around <laughs> the world on the I'd, screen. I'd, I'd rather watch this airplane just crash than watch this movie. <laughs> uh, now, as most empires, the British settlements and their native Zulu neighbors did not exactly get along. This was mostly due to the growing white population and the steady encro- their steady encroachment into native Zulu lands. Oh, bastards. As white people yep. are wont to do. Things were only made worse in 1867 when diamonds were discovered around the Val River near the town of Kimberley, a town that is now steeped in the cultural blood diamonds. Uh, the small town became the target of a diamond rush that attracted people from all over the world and ballooned to the population of around 50,000, which is an increase of around 100%. Boom. Uh, this, of course, drew the eye of the watching British imperial interests who were nearby. Three years later, the British simply just annexed the entire fucking area because that is just what they do. What, yeah. Uh, this brings us to the incredibly British named, and I'm going to try this one without laughing. Oh, good. Try, try to hold off. Henry Howard Montelieu Herbert, fourth Earl of Chevron. <laughs> <laughs> I, that Chevron came out of nowhere. Formerly known as the Lord of Porchester. <laughs> 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 I swear to God, half these people are just walking top hats and monocles. Like, <laughs> yeah, with that fucking Monopoly mustache. Yeah, I could pull a name out of my ass, and there's a 50% chance that he's in the House of Lords right now arguing about Brexit. I'm pretty sure we were doing that just 10 minutes ago. Uh, we actually did that for an episode. I, I said like five names of the House of Lords, and then I made two of them up, and I made you guess. Nobody got it right. (laughs) Anyway, he was the Secretary of State for the Colonies, which, again, is the most British office to ever exist. Uh, Lord Fuckface had brought about the creation of modern Canada in 1867, and he wanted to do much of the same thing with the various British settlements of South Africa. His plan called for a white ruling class to take control over the black majority population. It's not starting out so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is something that the Brits did all the time. Ever heard of a little Sounds place like known it. as Rhodesia? Yeah, <laughs> I have. Jesus Christ. Um, 
Now, this would, of course, produce a uh, cheap pool of labor for the plantations and the mines that the British wanted to control and the whole purpose of them owning it. He even extended a plan to the Boer settlements uh, for them to join the new British Federation. Now, while the Boers, or Boers, I'm going to get yelled at for that either way, uh, were way ahead of the British when it came to exploiting the labor of the local population, and that is something they'd go on to excel at over the next several generations, uh, to include the present day for the most part, uh, they did not want to give up their freedom to the British crown. If anybody's going to do racism in this neck of the woods, it's going to be us, said the Boer. (laughs) (laughs) They sound like they mastered it. Oh, they excel at it. Uh, They took... Now, I, my knowledge of, uh, of, of Boer institutional racism is mostly modern day uh, and apartheid, but they took like full on like founding fathers type racism energy and just just rode that motherfucker into the 1990s. <laughs> oh, that's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in 1877, the secretary tossed his hands up and decided to give his job to somebody else. He appointed Sir Henry Bartle Edward Ferrer, the High Commissioner of South Africa. This whole episode is full of these names. Super great names. Yeah. The secretary gave old Bartle a sweet deal. If he could figure out a way to make the secretary's confederation plan work, he would be appointed the first governor of the Southern African Dominion. Bartle had two obstacles standing in his way. One was the Boers, who were actually an internationally recognized nation as of 1852 and was even recognized by the British themselves in the Sand River Convention. Uh, If there was something that the British didn't care about, it was agreements, so it really didn't matter. Uh, So muscling into them would be kind of hard to pull off. The other obstacle was the Zulu Kingdom, now under the rule of young King Kachweho. A dude who killed his own brother to get the job. Well, I mean, I'm kind of not surprised about that. I mean, yeah, don't don't fuck with somebody who's willing to give it a little bit of regicide. Now, Ketsueho had worked with Europeans before, uh, and there is some evidence that he plotted with them so he could take the Zulu throne. He was not a weak king, and he had no intention of giving up his kingdom. Once in power, he saw the writing on the wall, as in a whole bunch of white dudes moving in next door. Uh, it's like that uh, Dave Chappelle skit where he goes up to the shores like, hey, a whole bunch of white people. Let's go say hi to him. Yeah, King Ketweho <laughs> didn't do that. He didn't? Uh, as, as anyone would have been in, this, in, in the same situation. He began to prepare for a conflict. Mm. He decided to adopt the expansionist ideas of the legendary king Shaka. As everybody knows, it's Shaka Zulu. Yeah. Uh, which he was related to. Really? Yes. He began oh, to cool. reinforce and train his impies, or the Zulu word for any body of armed men. Uh, now, anybody of armed men? Yes, is an impi. So just regular dudes because they have arms. Uh, well, they had spears. So yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, now, it is important to point out that the the native army of the Zulu was heavily evolved from what most people think of as a native army. They ran off levies and call-ups, kind of like a militia, but it was very, very, very organized. They were by far the most powerfully powerful native army in all of Africa. I mean, the Zulu kingdom only existed because it took over all of its neighbors yeah. and challenged the British. <laughs> um, and we will go on to... You're going to go on and, and listen to these next two episodes, and you're going to come out of it thinking the same thing I did. That the Zulus were a much better army than the British. Really? With one big difference. And it's going to be kind of important. Um, Now, as I kind of already said, the Zulu historically fought only with a spear and a cowhide shield. So it's a shield made of leather. Yeah. Um, They were culturally uh, unfavorable towards firearms. They thought firearms were the tool of a coward. Um, kind of like if I was to compare them to something people are similar to, it's them using a spear is the same as counting coup for a Native American. Um, it was considered the to be a true warrior, you killed them with your hands, or at least you touched them with your hands okay. before you killed them. Um, so they didn't have guns. They did start to pick up some muskets. They weren't very modern. And they didn't like using them. Like they thought it, 
They literally said that um, like a musket requires no skill. You can kill a warrior without even touching him. I wouldn't like a musket either. I mean, it's better than a spear. It is. I, I mean, I, I know me. If you're going to put me in a line with a fucking shield and a spear, I'd much rather have a gun. I've seen me use one. I don't think I'll be that good at the spear. <laughs> you you see yourself a ver- use a spear? I'm not a very brave man. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what the what the Zulu version of like a National Guard admin assistant would be, I but I'd be that guy. Do they qualify with spears? Oh, definitely. They train a lot. I don't know if they, I mean, they didn't wear shirts or anything, so they probably didn't have patches. Yeah. But. Like, maybe go to a spear range? They weren't for throwing. They were almost specifically for stabbing. Then they call them a sagi or a yeah, very very short. Um, a pike is for fighting in a formation. Right, pikes were the shit. Zulus did not fight in a formation. Oh, they didn't. They, I mean, they fought in a military group, which we will definitely talk about because it's something they they rope a dope the British into about twice, and ended up being one of the most legendary defeats in British history all the way up until World War One. Um, but they definitely weren't like a phalanx, which. Would have been easier for them to lose if they were phalanx because you you just shoot yeah, into the phalanx. That's true. Um, now there's a problem with this. That doesn't exactly sound threatening if you're the British Empire. So like you don't you you can't be like yeah the the unwashed hordes of the Zulu MP are gonna storm over the border and attack us because like dude they have spears. Does that sound threatening to the British Empire? No. Well, it's good because that's what that, that's exactly how they thought it thought of it. Well, King Ketsuweho had no plans to expand into British land, but they did not stop the Brits from lying about it. Oh. In order to make the spear-wielding Zulu army seem like a threat, the British did what came natural and just decided to make shit up. Bardol simply lied his fucking ass off about constant cross-border raids, which simply did not happen. He spun so many lies about the Zulu that when the British simply annexed the Boer Transvaal Republic in 1877, the Boers themselves bought the lies. They were so worried about the encroaching Zulu Empire that they didn't fight the British annexation because they feared they'd have to stand on their own against the invading Zulu army, which did not exist. Yeah. So loudly were they beating the wars, uh, the war drums against the Zulu, the British government had to come out against it. Now, Bartle, remember, is on his own when, with the British machinations of empire in South Africa. This is the British government in London had to come and be like, we don't want to fight the Zulus. Not only did they not want to fight the Zulus, but they had other colonial plant problems in India and East Asia at the time, and they kind of had their fucking hands full. Right. So with his own government against him, Bartle stopped itching for war. And that's, that's the end of the series. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, of course he fucking didn't. He just would force the Zulu to go to war against him, whether they liked it or not. We fucking do. So there was a series of minor incidents across the border where a few Zulu crossed the border to capture the fleeing wife of another Zulu, and they killed her. While this is a really shitty thing to do, it was in accordance with the Zulu law. Now, I only dabble in Zulu law. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, this is probably all on the level. And King Quetzweho said as much. He said, I apologize for crossing the border, but we were enforcing Zulu Had to law. be done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't kill wives. Did they kill her with a spear? Yeah. Yeah. They oh, did. totally on brand. That's cool. At least they stick to it. Now, Bartle acted like this is an absolute outrage, despite the fact that the British government never cared for the plight of an African refugee before or since. It was just his excuse. This includes up to the present day. That's true. (laughs) They deported multiple British subjects who happened to be of African descent like 10 years ago. Oh. Yeah. And also Jamaican. So, yeah. Racism island. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck. Uh, Now, Ketsweho apologized for the cross-border incident, said it would not happen again. The British lieutenant governor penned a letter to him in the form of a request that the Zulus surrender the culprits that had crossed the border to kill the wife. Now, I will say this sounds kind of okay. Like, if, if, if you're attempting to save your empire from war, like, am I going to give up these four dudes or am I going to go to war against the British Empire? It's not right, but, like, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a decent cop-out. Give up the shitty dudes? Yeah, like... Give up the guy who spear-stabbed their wives to get the death? Yeah, I mean... Now, uh, Bartle changed the wor- wording of the letter to read as a strongly worded demand while simultaneously asking for more soldiers to deploy to South Africa. 
of course, that was to protect them from the coming Zulu invasion. Not to attack anybody with. Defense. Yeah. Now, it should be noted that the lieutenant governor, uh, the, le- the letter to Ketsueho was little more of a suggestion. Bartle reworded it as a demand. That's pretty important. Um, the lieutenant governor was like, you know, things would be square with us if you gave these dudes up. Bartle's like, give these motherfuckers up or you're going to have problems. Um, and dispatches sent to Bartle over the course of the next three months, the governor gave Bartle everything he wanted while re- reminding him that the soldiers were only for self-defense. And, quote, it is not for the desire of Her Majesty's government to furnish the means of a campaign of invasion and conquest. About that. Yeah. <laughs> now, remember, I said Bartle was going to force Ketsueho into war. Right. With that in mind, Bartle called a meeting between the regional British leadership and representatives of the Zulu king. Once at the meeting, Bartle issued the Zulu government with a 13-point ultimatum. Now, number one. Surrender- oh, you have all 13. Oh, I do. They're all bad. Surrender of Sihayowo's three sons and the brother that they tried in the Natal courts. That was his cousin. That's the king's cousin. He's asking for them to give up his extended family to probably be executed. Right. Number two, payment of the fine of 500 head of cattle for the outrages committed uh, by the above and for Ketsueho's delay in complying with the request of the Natal government and the surrender of the offenders. Now, the Natal, Natal government is the government of British South Africa. Okay. Um, number three, payment in the head of 300 cattle for the offense committed against Messrs. Smith and Dighton, which was a cross-border raid, which did not happen. They were a, uh, a group of traders that was attacked by African bandits, and they just blamed on the Zulus. There's no proof that the Zulus did it. <laughs> Got it. like, they're black, they must be yeah. Zulus. Number four, surrender of the Swazi chief Umbalini and others named hereafter to be tried in the Transvaal courts. Now, the Swazis and the Boers did have problems, uh, mostly for the Boers encroaching it on their land. Uh, they wanted a sovereign leader to be given up to a foreign court. Number five, observance of the coronation promises. Number six, that the Zulu army be disbanded and the men allowed to go home. What? They had no standing army. They were a militia. Men yeah. always went home. The problem was they want them to disband so the British could invade. Number seven, the Zulu military system be discontinued and other military regulations adopted to be decided upon after the consultation with the Great Council and British representatives. They wanted to put their army in control of the British government. Number eight, that every man, when he comes to a man's estate, be free to marry. They wanted to breed the Zulu out of them. Number nine, all missionaries and their converts, who until 1877 lived in Zululand, shall be allowed to return and reoccupy their stations. It was conquest by religion. This is something that is really, really common. Um, some governments who did not want to just send boats full of soldiers placed, places would simply send missionaries. Right. This is how the French took over Vietnam. They oh. sent in tons of missionaries. The missionaries would eventually get attacked um, for, you know, spouting heresy against the local religion. The government, those missionaries would come from be like, oh, you're attacking our citizens. We're sending soldiers. Yeah, that's how colonialism happens, guys. That was Catholicism and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Number 10. All such missionaries shall be allowed to uh, teach any Zulu if he chooses, and any Zulu shall be free to listen to their teaching. You will allow yourselves yeah. to be uh, taken over. Number 11. A British agent shall be allowed to reside within Zululand, who will see that the above provisions are carried out and will be known as a resident. You're going to allow Brits to move into your kingdom yeah. and take it over. <laughs> Number 12, all disputes which a European is concerned shall be heard by the king in public and in the presence of that resident. They effectively give him diplomatic immunity. Number 13, no sentence of expulsion from Zululand will be carried out until it's been approved by the resident. Now he's in charge. <laughs> that one British guy is now in charge. Now, that was a lot of words for we're going to war. Yeah, accepting this like ultimatum would make Kitsueho little more than a British puppet with no military at his disposal to protect himself. It's very clear from the second it was issued, it would never be accepted. Bartle knew this because he already had the, the army under his command of Lord Clemsford to march for the Zulu border. While this is all going so on, the army is already being dispatched. 
Now I've heard this pronounced Clemsford and Shelmsford. So I'm going to go with Clemsford because I'm American and I'm dumb. I wouldn't even go for Shelmsford. Yeah. Uh, now on January 11th, 1879, Clemsford's army of 5,000 men invaded the Zulu empire. Clemsford thought virtually nothing of his enemies. Saying, quote, I, I shall strive to be in a position to show them how hopelessly inferior they are to us as a fighting power. He was so sure of his victory that he was worried that the Zulu armies would not stand up and fight him. Really? Yeah. But why would you think that a army full of black people with spears is your equal? If you are literally a lord of the British Empire. If you're that much of an asshole, <laughs> I guess. Now. While these were redcoats, because that had not yet passed, these are not the musket-wielding legions that most people think they, they think they are as the British imperial system. Like they're they they're not the the shitty brown bass wielding redcoats that we think of. Right. They were armed with modern cannons and Martini Henry trapdoor rifles. Oh, those aren't the ones from the Patriot. <laughs> While a single shot rifle, it would allow the soldier to fire as fast as he could. Uh, put an individual rounds into the rifle to the tune of about 10 to 12 rounds per minute. I would minute. totally buy a Martini Henry. Now, I don't know a lot about that rifle except the research I had to do for this episode and Battlefield 1. Uh, <laughs> that now was if, most of the research. Now, if Battlefield 1 is to be trusted, this motherfucker is the best rifle in the world. <laughs> now, compare that with having to run up to someone and shank them with a spear. It's pretty goddamn revolutionary. So, full of self-confidence, the British Army moved on and quickly realized they had underestimated everything. They got spear bayonets, too. (laughs) A knife (laughs) under the bottom of their bayonet. Uh, The British had no good maps of the area. Instead, they relied on native members of their army, of which they had about 2,500. Now, these are natives from Natal, not Zululand. The problem, of course, was these guys were not from the area. Yeah. The Brits went full racist. You look like them. Yeah. They went full racist, just like, well, you're African. I don't see the difference. Yeah. <laughs> so they made their march over incredibly rough terrain that slowed them down to a crawl. But none of that mattered. The Brits were dumb, but they were used to fighting natives who relied on levied armies. They planned their invasion for the harvest season. So the vast majority of military age males would be off working the land. That would be true. If the Brits knew anything about Zulu culture or customs. Those fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Many African cultures called their warriors home for harvest, but the Zulus did not. <laughs> really? Uh, the first fruit ceremony Zulus knew. held in the Zulu capital of Yulundi was actually the exact opposite of what the Brits thought it was. It was required for all warriors to report to their regimental barracks, not oh. the fields. Meeting the British invaded at literally the worst time they possibly could. I see Admiral Akbar. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the Admiral Akbar saying it, this is a it's a trap. Oh fuck, we had that. Was too. the cover for the uh, Kabul retreat episode? I think so. Yeah, so it applies. So when the Zulu king got word of the invasion, he dispatched twenty four thousand of his warriors with the orders to march slowly, attack at dawn, and eat up the red soldiers. I should point out now, no, uh, I should point out now that the Zulu version of a slow march was covering 50 fucking miles in five days. I'd hate to see their their fast march carrying no supplies with them. What's their fast march? I I assume a dead sprint. Death. (laughs) Uh, They did not carry any supplies with them other than like some snacks. Very little water. They have cliff bars? What kind of <laughs> snacks do they carry? Pop-tarts and rippets? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it was like nuts and berries and shit. Yeah. Um, water br- buffalo. In comparison, the British managed nine miles in ten days. Oh, fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> they finally said fuck it and decided to set up Go a camp back. Oh. at a little place known as Islawanda on January 20th. Once there, they did not entrench or build any defensive works whatsoever. Don't need it. Why would they? They're only fighting Zulu. Yeah. Even the smallest amount of defensive preparation, such as circling the wagons, which is known as a logger, was not done. That's what I take every morning. <laughs> Clemsford didn't bother to do any of this, despite the fact it was literally word for word out of the British regulation at the time. He simply thought it would take too long and they weren't going to be there long enough for it to matter. 
Once his camp was set up, Clemsford sent out two native battalions to scout up ahead, uh, ahead of camp to just act as team human shield. Effectively, like, yeah, if you see shields. anything move, let us know. They quickly found elements of the Zulu unit and reporting back to camp. Clemsford thought this is a small group of Zulu and had to be a vanguard of some kind of main enemy force and did the one thing you never do. Split your army. Yes. Splitting your army to chase after someone is like running up the stairs away from a serial killer in a movie. When the front door is right there. I cannot help but scream, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, so 2,500 soldiers were ordered to give chase to that small unit of Zulus. Makes sense. Now, remember, Clemsford is worried that the Zulus would not fight him in open battle. So this detachment was meant to meet them in open battle. He left behind five companies around 70 to 80 men apiece to guard the camp with two cannons between them. Just keep trying to remember that the area they have to defend is, has no fighting positions whatsoever. Right. It's just a group of fucking tents out in the sand. Clemsford left his camp in the charge of Brevet Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pauline. Unfortunately for about 1,300 British and Native soldiers, he happened to be a supply clerk with no frontline command experience. Don't need it against We're, the Zulus. You, re- you, ready f- you ready for me to say it? Yeah. It gets worse. <laughs> British scouts were reporting back to the camp about a group of thousands of Zulu warriors being sighted, literally sprinting towards them. <laughs> <laughs> How did he report it? They ran back. So, like, you can imagine uh, the... Just out trying to outrun them? I mean, um, imagine the time difference. Like, oh, I, I, I found a group of 5,000 Zulu warriors two miles out. Okay, well, you had to run two miles here to tell me that. Oh, dear God, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're right outside. Um, it quickly, quickly became cleared that the Clemsford army had been totally and completely outmaneuvered. As he split his forces out from the camp, the Zulu just moved in around him, not wanting to fight him leaving Clemsford wandering around in circles, just wondering where the fuck the Zulus were, all while they were preparing to attack the camp behind him that he was supposed to be in command of. (laughs) While the Zulu intended to wait a little bit longer before launching their main attack, their hand was forced when a British scout stumbled upon their main force of 20,000 warriors. A British scout. Uh, A group. It was like Uh, 50 or 60. One dude found 20,000. They were only five miles away from the camp. The scouts began a fighting retreat back to the camp where British forces, not having any defensive works to fight from, were deployed in a long, thinly manned firing line, thinking their superior firepower would fight back the vastly larger Zulu army. And it did kind of work for a little while. For the first full 20 minutes, Pauline didn't bother to change the formation much. Instead, he brought the lines closer to the camp, which is a good idea so he could make resupply easier. Despite overwhelming odds, the disciplined British ranks pinned down the center of the Zulu formation for over an hour. The soldiers' morale was high, and the British center, or sorry, the Zulu center stalled as the cannons started firing and blowing the living shit out of them, and they were forced to take cover. Now, if you were charging a modernly armed center in a frontal assault, it's probably like the layup to the alley-oop, right? <laughs> sure. Like, you wouldn't just be yeah. like, we're going to charge directly at you over and over again and get shot with cannons. Yeah, let me just try to dunk. Unfortunately for the British, that was exactly what the Zulu wanted them to do. Oh. And using military tactic nor- named the Horns in the Chest of the Buffalo, the Zulu center was about to be made a sacrifice. While the British ch- changed their formation and brought all of their fire to bear upon this center, this being the Chest of the Buffalo. Right. The buffalo horns were working their way around mm. the British flanks, completely and totally unseen. Good names. Finally, when the British did notice they were about to be completely encircled, they began to withdraw back to the camp. Do you think any of the British soldiers were like, look, it almost symbolizes like a buffalo and then the horns coming around. It's an angry fucking cow, run! <laughs> yeah. uh, finally, the British realized that, oh dear God, we're being encircled and beat a hasty retreat back to the camp. The problem was this plan required each individual company to retreat perfectly to cover the flanks of the other companies to ensure nobody got left behind and exposed. Oh, man. From the oncoming buffalo fucking. sounds terrible. That is not something that happened. Several units were left behind and overrun in minutes and slaughtered as others retreated in good order back to the camp. In the middle of all this, a solar fucking eclipse occurred. 
what are the chances? <laughs> a buffalo and a solar eclipse. I mean, that's not important, but I feel like I should bring it up because imagine should. in the middle of all this shit, the sun is just suddenly blot from the sky. <laughs> like, oh, God. Oh, bugger. Oh, bugger. The blood eclipse. I'm getting buffalo fucked by the sun. <laughs> Uh, that has to be either the best or worst omen in human history, depending on what side of this battle that you're on. (laughs) Awesome. Like, someone's like, oh, dear God, the sun is gone. The Zulu's like, fuck yeah, we blotted out the sun. (laughs) The soldiers' firing rate began to slow as the horns closed in on them, and they burned through their ammunition. Boxes of ammunition were stored at the back of the camp, with each company being in control of their own supply. There was not a central resupply system. If you were like an alpha company, you had to go resupply an alpha company. Problem being is most of your company's probably already dead. So where do you go? Well, I'm going to go to Bravo Company. No, sir. This is only for Bravo Company. Right. Yeah. So I just have no ammo now. Cool. Now, British Army regulation at the time say that quartermasters could only issue out ammunition to their own units, and each box could only be opened after the one before it was used up completely. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Ensuring that the kind of brittle ammunition that they used at the time was not left out to foul in the elements. So in the middle of all this, designated runners were hauling ass back to the camp to get ammo only to be turned down because they were in the wrong company or because the the quartermaster forced runners to wait in neat orderly lines as they issued out ammunition to one person at a time and took note on paperwork for administration purposes. Hold on, hold on. You need to sign here the right date. Yeah, imagine the sun is Hold literally on. being burned yeah. from the sky. There's Zulus surrounding you like, sir, please sign here. Hold on, <laughs> sir, signature. Sir, you can't Print take your that. name, date. I need date. your last four, sir. <laughs> Just to add a special extra layer of stupid to the whole situation, they couldn't even open many of the ammo boxes. You see, the British Army had become a practice of, sc- of using screws to secure one boxes rather than nails. They also neglected to hand out screwdrivers. Excuse <laughs> <laughs> your rifles. Only a couple of like the quartermasters had screwdrivers, uh, which left many tired soldiers to uh, just start smashing these boxes open <laughs> with the rifle butts, <laughs> which is a slow process. Uh, anybody who was uh, so everybody who was screaming at whatever uh, they used to listen to their podcasts just a second ago can take solace that pretty much all of these shitty paper-pushing quartermasters died a horribly violent, spear-related death shortly thereafter. I hope they, like, required paperwork before death. As he's getting speared, <laughs> Sir! Sir, I need your requisition form to gut me! Sir! Sign this! Sign this! <laughs> sir, I need your last four! And the Zulu's like, fucking die, bitch! <laughs> yeah, Why would you die? Die! Die! That's my pen. Like... <laughs> You have to show up for the next formation at zero three. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's almost like trying to open an MRE box that has super glue. Like It's like opening up an MRE box with your bare hands and you have no fingernails. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. for some reason, they decide to glue the shit out of the fucking... <laughs> and they have like staples in them yeah. and plastic wrap. So it was around this time that the British began to fail at organized resistance. Command and control broke down completely, lines fell apart, and soldiers began to run out of ammunition. The, the disciplined orderly ranks of fire were gone as soldiers randomly grouped up to fight in desperate last stands all around the camp in small groups. Mm. The most disciplined one there? The quartermaster. <laughs> he's just sitting in the back of his fucking wagon screaming at people for signatures as he's lit on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Holding his ground. <laughs> These groups were as small as two or three people and as large as an so entire what? battalion. Fuck. And just like knowing they're going to die, circle, like forming a but square. But the battalion won't let the two or three people. You're not in the right battalion. <laughs> you can't come in. Like imagine being the guy in the middle of the formation with the wagon. Like, sorry, this is Delta troops ammunition. Uh, this is just a random square of soldiers. I simply cannot give you the. the- yeah. We're going to die. Well, you're not in <laughs> What Delta kind troop. of extended bureaucracy school do you go to to be a quartermaster in the British Army? I don't know. I think you just have to hate everybody. Yeah, you like any other quartermaster, yeah. you have you have to make everybody just feel miserable. A Zulu account talks about a company forming a square and fighting to the death. Members of the colonial cavalry, who could have very easily ran for their lives as they had horses, were still alive, dismounted, and fought alongside Lieutenant Colonel Durnford as in a last stand. Idiots. Yeah, they, totally they definitely should have ran. ran. Uh, some soldiers fought for their lives back-to-back, fending off thousands of Zulu warriors with rifle, butt, and bayonet. 
Other Zulu account tells the story of a single Irish soldier of the 24th Regiment fighting off wave of Zulu warriors dual-wielding rifle-mounted bayonets <laughs> in an attempt to protect the general's Union Jack flag. What? <laughs> These efforts were, of course, rewarded with the copious amounts of spear wounds and death. Oh, God. Spear wounds sound terrible. It has to be. Like, you're not going to die with one stab. No. Oh, got me again. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, fuck. That sucked. Okay. I'm bleeding out. It's like the, the scene from Scream where the guy stabs himself. I'm getting awfully fucking woozy here, yeah. man. As I, he, <laughs> I'm also imagining Ace Ventura as well. Oh, he, he gets the spears in the legs. legs. He's like, throw me another. <laughs> you speak what you do? Now just imagine a screaming, probably drunk, Irish oh, soldier, yeah. dual wielding what is amounted to a rifle spear fighting hundreds of people all at once. You know he's calling them every name in the Irish dictionary, oh, yeah, which is only the word cunt. <laughs> just, ah, 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 as he's just getting juiced with spears. Two officers, a Lieutenant Melville and a Lieutenant Coghill, of course that's what their name was, yeah. attempted to protect the Queen's color of their regiment. For people unsure of what that means, it is a flag. They grabbed a flag, jumped on their horses, and rode off before being killed while attempting to cross a nearby river. In case anybody was concerned, the flag washed up a few miles down river because okay. the Zulus didn't give a fuck about people's colors. Because yeah. why would they? It's a flag. Uh, these two were made into heroes for giving their lives for a bit of stupid fucking cloth, even though other officers questioned why the hell two officers were running away from battle to protect the flag while other soldiers were still fighting for their lives. Definitely, I have a good reason Despite for it. Despite accusations of obvious cowardice, the two were posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest award their lovely queen could offer their bodies. Nice. Now, as we've talked about before, armies of this era had a large numbers of hangers-on. Civilians who sold goods or did services for the army, whatever. Well, this army is no different, and the Zulus knew it. The Zulu warriors were ordered to ignore the people in black jackets. That was the normal wear and attire of a civilian in an army uh, camp. Fuck, I'm keeping a black jacket on me. This had the side effect of allowing a few British officers to escape a full face of spears. Some officers' patrol uniforms were dark blue, uh, and a quick glance would make them look black. Uh, and some warriors did not notice the difference. This is how five officers managed to survive the massacre. I want to see like a thread count Zulu warrior that goes up to the jacket, and just like does a strokes real it good with inspection. the back of his hand. Yeah, sir, this is only a thousand. Come here, so I can spear you. Yeah, get ready to get fucking speared. One of the last people to die was the incredibly overweight native commander named Oh boy, Gabengoye. I. Did not pronounce that right. <laughs> he was given up. How was he the last one? Uh, he's, he, so he was fat and did not fight while everybody else fought. So he's in the back of the wagon? Pretty much. And after the fighting was over, he quickly uh, was given up by his carrier boys. Uh, now well, they got to carry him. Yes, quite literally. Yes. Uh, now, the carrier boys were trying to save their lives. They were working for the British and their native contingent, and decided, like, well, if we give him the native officer, they'll let us live. They all died. They all oh, were immediately man. executed for being traitors. No quarter was given to anyone, and then when the smoke cleared, 1,300 of the 1,700 soldiers were dead. It's a lot. If you're wondering where Lord Clemsford was while his entire army was being massacred, well, he was doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> He's out doing maneuvers. Still out looking for what he swore to fucking God was the main Zulu army, despite the fact that 20 goddamn thousand of them had been behind him the whole time. That's fucking terrible. <laughs> While all this is going on, or while organized resistance was ongoing, he had received numerous messages from runners about the situation back at the camp. These messages grew in desperation as the battle wore on, all the way up until George Hamilton sent Brown a message that read, quote, for God's sake, come back. The camp is surrounded. What do you, what, what do you think he did? I imagine he's still doing maneuvers going like, no, Yeah, he didn't go back to the camp. I don't think oh, they're out here. At one point, a unit simply said, fuck it. I can't do this anymore. And immediately uh, beat a retreat back towards the camp all on their own without orders. They were forced to stop when Clemsford demanded they return at once or their officers face the consequences. 
you know, if he just would have kept going, he wouldn't have to worry about because he just would have died. Yeah. <laughs> There's no consequences to be had. Uh, they only made it about two miles, but somehow they were the closest any British unit would come to sending help. That kind of blows. By the time he finally decided uh, the situation called for him to act, it was 3.30 p.m., a full two hours after he received a letter begging for him to return. By the time he got off his ass, the camp had been taken, and all the men he left behind were dead. Rupert Longsdale, one of the five surviving, surviving officers who happened to escape because of the color of his jacket, found Clemsford and reported to him what had happened. A shot Clemsford responded, quote, I left a thousand men to guard the camp. Yeah, he, yeah they're, they're all dead. They're all dead because you're fucking stupid. What was left of Clemsford Army camped nearby and what became a mass grave for thousands of people before withdrawing the next morning to Rourke's Drift. And that is where we'll pick up next week. That's what a cliffhanger, first of all. Now, uh, it needs to be said, uh, because we would be not us if we didn't point out what people consider war crimes. And that is um, the disfigurement of British dead at Islawanda. That is not what happened. Uh, now, the British were, uh, let's say, manhandled after death. And there's a reason for that. There was a Zulu ceremony known as the washing of the spears. That was when they stabbed... Oh, they got bloody spears. Yeah. Now, gotta wash them. they stabbed the dead bodies of their fallen enemies in the stomach. Um, that was not to disfigure their corpses. That was to release the gases that their stomachs held. So they did not explode in the African heat. Because remember, they fucking live there. (laughs) They don't want to smell that shit. Yeah. uh, But when are they going to wash their spears? I mean, that's what they washed them in. This was sweet, sweet gut juice. Um, Now, is it right? I don't know. I just, there's a difference between, you know, carving shit into bodies, which Native Americans did do. Uh, they castrated men, things like that. But that was that had a lot to do with um, afterlife. If I take your dick from you, your your manhood's been stolen in the afterlife. Um, but it had nothing to do with that. It was simply practical. So they weren't disfiguring bodies, and they weren't you know dishonoring the dead. Though I'm sure they cared very little for the for the dead because I mean, <laughs> they, they executed wounded people. Uh, and that's something that the Brits did as per SOP or standard operating procedure throughout the Zulu war was execute every wounded Zulu person they found. But uh, I'm not here to stick up for the Zulu kingdom as much as I am here to just tell an accurate story. Right. Which brings us to our segment questions from the Legion. (laughs) Now I, I wish I had some fun theme music for that, but I, I do not. There should be. I don't know what what would the theme music be. I feel like it'd be like a guitar riff and somebody like doing a devil's growl. Yes, it has to be sweet licks. Yeah. So if you're a member of a thrash metal or death metal band, I'll settle for an oi band, like an oi punk band, uh, and you want to make us a intro. Bluegrass. It'd be fucking sweet. Uh, eh. Now, the uh, question comes from a supporter named Nadia. Question: We all know Nick did cosplay, also known as reenactment what is the nerdiest thing that you have been slash are into uh did you ever do anything nerdier than that it was still within the realm but i got really into class a four pockets for the army in the 30s and 40s era time frame so i collected a lot of those like a very four pockets so there are uniforms like the ike jacket which i'm sure you've heard of and then there's a thing called the four pocket it's basically four pockets main asu jacket you see today huh yeah you obsessed with that one uniform that one jacket one reason only is because of the stuff i usually would get on it when i buy how it. many of the jackets did you have i had 10 you had 10 it's more jackets than i own just like as a person same because <laughs> i never wore those but they had different stuff on it like the uh uh the pinwheel for the army air corps not the army air force it's hard to find or different ranks that don't exist, or different insignia, or different patches that just don't exist anymore. Super cool. You know, I feel that that's less nerdy than what I did because I I used to be really into magic cards. I played magic cards through elementary, middle, and like the first two years of high school. I went to the local card store and competed. 
uh, which smelled as bad as you probably think it does. And I was really into anime at the same time. Uh, I mean, I still watch anime from time to time, but you know, I don't. I'm like, I don't qualify as a weeb. I don't think, but. I gave you my Crunchyroll. Yeah, <laughs> we share a Crunchyroll subscription. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how you know our relationship has reached the next level. <laughs> Pretty much, but yeah, I, I, I definitely had well over ah, fuck, I don't five hundred Magic cards at one point. Nice. Um, I don't remember why I stopped, except like all the people I played with moved away. And I mean, like, it's Magic cards is one of those things that like I don't think that the thing itself is necessarily geeky because like there's nothing more nerdy about playing magic cards is like playing final fantasy games which i absolutely love um except like the people which are gross uh, <laughs> like there's, a this, there's a stereotypical magic card guy at a game shop that smells like he has never owned a fucking deodorant stick in his life and his ass crack is hanging out of his jeans like that's a stereotype for a reason uh and i was you know 10 through 14 15 at this time right and even then, I was like, this is kind of gross. That's why I always say, like, whenever somebody's better than me at video games, I just say they're sweaty. <laughs> that just reminds me of that. Oh, the, the musty gamer. Yeah. Uh, now, um, thank you for tuning in for part one of the Anglo-Zulu War. If you think what we do is worth a dollar, you can throw it to us on Patreon, where you get access to... A lot of stuff now. The list keeps growing, yeah. actually. Uh, yeah, you could ask questions. Yeah, the Hell of a Way, Lines Led by Donkeys, communal Discord. Uh, you get access to episodes early. You get ap- access to one more episode a month where we talk about pop culture, video games, movies, comic books, a- a- anything to do with military Porn. history. Porn. Porn. No. Oh, Not that yet. Oh, boy. Um now, if you give as little as $1, you can ask us a question on Patreon. As long as it is something I can at least answer within five minutes, I will answer it eventually. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of cool. Uh, somebody Actually, somebody said that would be um, a fun thing to do, one of the listeners, because like the Q&A episode's really fun, but you do one a year. So, like... And not everybody wants to ask like deep historical questions that takes us 20 minutes to explain. Sometimes I just want to do a merry fuck kill. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and it could even be brought in during like some of the heavy topics where we have to do a little fucking ice break. Oh, dude, we throw a question in there. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes I feel like whenever we cover war crimes, I want to be like, so, (laughs) and, and a baby platypus is known as a puggle, uh, which is true. Like you gotta lighten it up a bit because otherwise you're just sad. Um, but because I thought I want to do something for people who support the show because there's now over 200 of you, and Patreon shoutouts are kind of lame. Um, and I want to do something different because we're a different show. We've always done different shit. Uh, people don't people just don't do what we do, and I wanted to continue that. Um, so if you think what we do is worth that, uh, you can find us on Patreon. But for everybody else. Uh, our show will always be free. You'll get one episode a week uh, of, of dubious quality. Um, and for episodes like these, uh, where I used a, a varying amount of sources, uh, you can check the show notes and all the sources will always be there. I cannot guarantee they'll be MLA compatible because I am not doing a term paper. Uh, but for everybody else, we will see you next week. Later.